listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me say good morning. And my name is Mark Kirkendall, and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And if you're a guest with us today, we are so glad that you are here, but we want you to know that we do not believe that is by accident. That we believe that God, each and every week, brings a group here together, and that He has something for us. And as we get started this morning, I do want to say, I hope you will sign up for Discover Bethel. It really is a great night. We'll have good food. Uh, we'll have child care for those that need it. But it's a great opportunity for us to get to share more about this church, Bethel, that we love And also a great way for you to get to know a lot of the team leaders and leadership and ask any questions. Uh, So if you would, put your name on that sheet in the back or you can go online. Uh, We just want to make sure we have enough seats and enough food. And so this morning, here is where we find ourselves. For several weeks now, uh, we're in the Gospel of John. And in week one, we saw Jesus as the Word. And this Word comes and He shines as a light in a dark world. But it tells us that light was rejected even by his own people. So then we see Jesus as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And he comes into a lost and dying world, but that Lamb was rejected by those religious leaders that they did not have eyes to see spiritual truth. Then last week was Jesus as the Transformer. That Jesus comes to this wedding and You know, there's a crisis that they have no wine, but we saw from Scripture that that wine represents joy, and Jesus comes to this joyless nation. So he comes with the power to transform lives and to create joy in them. Well, this morning, we're going to see Jesus in a very, very different light. It's in John chapter 2, if you want to find your way there. We're going to begin in verse 13, but... It's like the person that you know or you think you know or you've seen. And then all of a sudden, there is this different side to them that you had no idea about. So there's a show that I forced my family to watch uh, called America's Got Talent. And it had one of these people on it this year. It was this young 13-year-old girl named Courtney Hadwin. And she was this shy you know, our thing is, man, is this going to be really good? Is it going to be great? And I mean, she's a shy. She won't hardly look at anybody. But then all of a sudden, some 60s rock comes on. And this girl turns into a totally different personality. And I was pulling for her. Uh, she was Howie's golden buzzard. I was hoping she was going to win it all, uh, but she didn't. Uh, but it's like that. You see this person and you think, oh, this is who they are. And then something just shocks you. Or if you're like me. You had this one friend, and you didn't really, you you knew them, but all of a sudden you just made a comment that you didn't understand really the big deal between, you know, DC and Marvel Comics. And you realize that you've just stepped into something, and there's this like alternate universe that your friend is totally passionate about. So for the next 45 minutes, you were in their teaching lesson about the difference between Marvel and DC and which one's better or that, and you realize I'll never do that again. Or if you've met my lovely wife, Marla, you know how sweet that she can be. But if you've 
never been to one of her child's sporting events, there's a different side of her. So I'm just going to tell you, do not sit in front of her, especially if you're holding a young baby. Because there is this side of her that comes out that is great, but if you've never seen that, it can be a little un- un- alarming to see how passionate she is about her children playing sports. And so last week we saw Jesus at this wedding, and he was this mild, he's this meek, compassionate side that doesn't want this groom to be humiliated or embarrassed. But this morning, we're going to say very different side to Jesus. If you have your Bibles or on your device, we're in chapter 2 of John, beginning in verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And John is the only gospel that's going to take us to the Passover or to the temple, Jerusalem, the Passover, four different times. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so the Passover uh, is, is so unique. It is the largest celebration if you are a Jew. There's three major celebrations a year, but the Passover is like the Super Bowl of all celebrations. It's the time that they come together and they celebrate uh, the Exodus you read about in Exodus 12, their deliverance from uh, slavery in Egypt. And every year you would gather together and celebrate your independence. It would be like our 4th of July, but on steroids for a month. You know, some of you celebrate your birthdays all month. I don't understand that. But, you know, it's like taking that celebration, and it's a month-long focus on that time. So what would happen? It's almost like the Olympics coming to your city. You're going to rebuild your roads. You're going to redo bridges. The storefronts are going to be repainted. Decorations are going to be set out. You want this to be the grandest thing all year long. And people did this. They're estimate that two to three million people would travel through the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But if you've never seen Jerusalem, it doesn't seem like much because it's this walled city that is about one-tenth of the size of the White House city limits. So Jerusalem is not this large place. In this walled city, two to three million people gathering Uh, for these huge celebrations. And at the heart of this city sits the temple. And it's important for our discussion today. So the temple was the focus of of worship. It was where you would hear music. You would come and you could hear celebrations. You would hear mourning. People would come to pay their temple tax and they would come to offer their animals for sacrifices. So at this temple, in the center of the temple, was the holy temple. Of holies. This was where God's presence dwelt. Outside of that, you had the court of men. That's where the Jewish men would, would gather. You had a court for the Jewish women, for them to come and worship. But I want you to notice the court of the Gentiles. This was where non-Jewish people gathered, and they would gather, and it's so important for the discussion today because This is a place where people that were not a part of God's children, not a part of Israel, they would come and they would watch. They would gather together and they would watch God's people, Israel. They would watch them worship and sing and offer sacrifices in the hopes that a Gentile would then come to faith. So Jesus makes his way to the temple and notice what he sees in verse 14. 
in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So every Jewish male, when they hit the age of 19, they would participate in this practice where you would come and you were required to bring a sacrifice to the temple. So it could be a sheep, it could be an oxen, or it could be a pigeon or a bird. And this was part of their system of the sacrifices. But if you were traveling from a long distance, it would be really difficult to bring that oxen all that way. I mean, it could die, it could be stolen, maybe get sick along the way. So there would be people there that would allow you to purchase an animal for your sacrifice. But what happened was... This first started outside the temple. To the east there would be the Kedron Valley, and on the side of the Mount of Olives is where people would set up shop, and you could travel, and you could make that exchange. You could pay, and I'm going to buy my sheep once I get there, uh, take it into the temple for sacrifice. But also, at the age of 19, you're required to pay a temple tax. But what happened is if you worked in a different region, you might have a Roman or a Gentile coin. That's what you were used to having. But when you came to the temple, it had to be a Jewish coin. So you would travel, you would get there, you would make the exchange with your money so that you could then pay your temple tax. But notice it all started outside the temple. But this was a practice that... Jesus would have seen it. It isn't like Jesus just showed up one day and all of a sudden things changed. He would have seen this year after year. In fact, from he was 12 years old, he went to the temple. By the time he was 19, he would have been participating in all of these practices. But now we see that Jesus sees this, but notice what happens. You're going to see a side of Jesus that you don't often see. It's a very passionate side of him. Verse 15. He walks into the temple, and he makes a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturns the tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So first of all, he takes the material and he braids it together. He makes a whip and he drives out the sheep and the ox and he creates a stampede. So then he goes to the money changers and he overturns their tables, goes to the people selling pigeons and says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now what's interesting is that if you read this in the other gospels, it reads very different. And John puts this at the very beginning of the gospel or Jesus's public ministry. All the others put it at the end. I take it there are actually two temple cleansings. I could be wrong about that, but I believe there's two. But the question is, is what causes Jesus to all of a sudden become so passionate outwardly about what he is seeing? Well, I think it's several things. One, I think the worship of God has been replaced by the worship of money. The money changers, they're doing this exchange but what's happened is they've started charging unreasonable amounts to do this. In fact, some research says that it, they would be paying up almost to a day's wages just to convert. Inspectors were specially trained to spot your animal, to look it over, kind of like the Westminster Dog Show. And they would tell you if that animal was, was uh, worthy enough, clean enough, pure enough. 
what they're doing. You bring your sheep in. You've spent special care. It's been on a special diet. You've protected it. You've done all the things right. They say, no, you know, there's just something wrong with it. But here we have one that is ready for your taking. They would then buy, you would then pay for their sheep. They would take yours and they would put it back in the flock and sell it to somebody else coming through. So I think this love of money, materialism, had replaced a love for God. But I also think Jesus is so worked up about this is because the worship that Jesus finds has now become a religious circus. Instead of thinking as you're coming into the temple, what should you be hearing? Instead of hearing praises and prayers and confessions, there's the sound of sheep and oxen. It'd be like trying to have church in, in like an ag show. And you've gone to the barn and you're trying to gather together. Instead of hearing the, the worship and hearing the praise, there's all these sounds of animals. Instead of a brokenness over sin and, and holy praises being sung to God, you, you almost are drowned out by the yelling of people bartering over how much they're going to exchange your, your coins for. And it was an absolute circus, like having church on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So Jesus gets so upset because this all of a sudden worship of in his father's house has been turned into a circus. But there's another reason, because I think it has to do with where does Jesus find these people? Notice where he sees this circus going on. It isn't in the court of men. It isn't in the court of women. It's in the court of Gentiles. And why would that be such a big deal to Jesus? Well, the court of the Gentiles is where those that were not a part of God's chosen people, Israel, non-God-fearing people, where they came... And there was this wall that encompassed it, but you could see over. So imagine you're a young, non-Jewish boy. You're a Gentile, and you grew up in a certain region. But you begin hearing about this group of people that you were taught to worship many, many gods. There was the God of the sun, the God of the earth, the God of the water. And you were taught to worship all these. But you, you hear about a group of people that are worshiping only one God. You're kind of curious. Where would you go to hear about this, to discover what is going on? You would be welcomed into the court of the Gentiles. You're interested and you're wanting to see what's going on. You walk into the temple. You finally get the courage to do that, but instead of seeing people humbly and authentically worshiping God, you can't hardly walk around for all the oxen, sheep, and the money changers everywhere. The smell of manure, it would have been overwhelming. Instead of hearing praises to the one true God, it's the sounds of animal or people yelling, trying to, uh, to figure out what the price would actually be. I'm thinking, what kind of image does this give a person that is wanting to know more about this God, Yahweh? I mean, you'd heard stories about this God that spoke to a man in a burning bush. You've heard stories about how these people were in slavery in Egypt, but how God delivered them uh, through these series of plagues, how he parted the Red Sea. You'd have heard about a God that, that was protecting this group of people as they traveled in the wilderness for 40 years. A God that was with a small group of people that every army they came up against, they were victorious in. But as you come to the temple to experience who this God is and where God dwelt, that's the scene you're seeing. So I think Jesus, he's not protesting the sacrificial system 
But they've turned his father's temple into a market, into a circus. But there's another interesting point in this is that notice who Jesus speaks to. He drives out the oxen, he drives out the sheep. People are running after to gather their animals back together. Turns over the money changers' tables, but he doesn't speak. So they probably start picking up their money. But he goes to those that are selling pigeons. Now, what would be significant about that? And he says to them, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. I think another reason Jesus is so upset is because he is hindering the worship of those less fortunate or the poor. God wanted worship to be inclusive of everybody to be able to have a part. And the pigeon was the one that everyone could afford. Maybe you couldn't afford an oxen, you could not afford a sheep, but you could afford a pigeon. It was to include everybody to have a process of being able to experience the sacrifices. So I think we see here as Jesus is showing special compassion to those less fortunate. But imagine what this was like for these onlookers. And so every year you, you wait and you can't anticipate. I mean, it's like Christmas morning, everything wrapped up together for this time of the Passover. You come together and every year this has been going on and all of a sudden this one man single-handedly completely stops the Passover. One man, all of a sudden everything comes to a halt because of one man's actions. And what happens is what we're going to see is there's two different reactions about when Jesus shuts down the Passover. Notice the first reason in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what is it that they're thinking? Well, they're going back to something they heard or they read about, and it's Psalm 69. And David is in this unique place where, man, David is at this point completely sold out. And people are watching him have such a passion for the temple, but they think he's crazy. And this is how it reads. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. People are against me. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers. They don't get me. An alien in my mother's uh, to buy my mother's sons, they don't even own me. But the reason all of this is happening is for zeal, for your house, man, it has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you, hey, that has fallen on me. So it's being attacked and being misunderstood for his zeal, his passion for God's house. And the disciples are starting to connect the dots. They're remembering back to King David when he said this. Then David tells them, someone is coming after me, after my line that will sit on my throne forever. And they begin saying, wait, maybe this is that one that David was talking about. They're beginning to see Jesus coming as the better David, the one that will sit on David's throne forever. And so we see that Jesus has this same zeal, and that zeal will lead to his death. But the disciples, they're starting to get it, but not everyone. Notice the second reaction. It's in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And so the Jews, they come and they're asking, who gives you the right to come in and stop the Passover? Now, I've been struggling with this all week, that 
That is a very strange reaction. Because imagine Easter Sunday morning, time where we get our best on and we prepare for weeks. Uh, buildings are usually packed, churches are packed. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of, of our worship service, someone breaks through the back door and starts shouting nonsense, turning over chairs, uh, kicking tables. I mean, what in the world would we do? Well, hopefully, we would have enough security uh, that we could, you know, get them, get them out of the room to figure out what is going on. Somebody talk to them out there so that we could move on with our service. But they don't. They stop and simply ask, who gives you the right? What gives you the authority to come in and do these things? They're asking for proof about who he is. But instead of giving them this kind of magical proof, he gives them a promise. And you see it. So we've seen the passion. Now, notice the promise Jesus gives them in verse 19. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So not only does Jesus say, the temple is my father's house, he is saying, I am the temple. In fact, perhaps Jesus even pointed to himself saying, destroy this temple and I will rise it up in three days. What Jesus has done is now publicly begin talking about his death and his resurrection. But the Jews, and they don't have eyes to see it because in verse 20, when he said this, all they look around and they said to him, wait, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're going back to about 20 BC when Herod began rebuilding the temple. But he says, and you'll raise it up, you'll rebuild it in three days. But he was speaking about his temple. It was actually his body. So the Jews, they can only see with their physical eyes and they're seeing this magnificent temple that took 46 years to build. And they're thinking, there's no way you're a lunatic. There's no way you can build it in three days. But why is John recording all this? He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And slowly, he's beginning to reveal more and more of who Jesus is, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name. And what we're seeing is this starting to happen. Because read the last few verses with me, beginning in verse 22. He says, therefore, he was raised from the dead. The ultimate sign of who Jesus was. We're post the resurrection. John is writing this, looking back, and he says, yeah, the disciples, they remembered what he had said about this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus spoke from the Old Testament to the New. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, here it is, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So the disciples and many others are coming to believe it's actually happening. This is why Jesus came. He came to offer salvation and redemption to a lost and dying world. And notice what John does here in these last four verses. He makes two important discoveries. 
First, he says, this mission of salvation is far too important for God to leave in the hands of man. My Father has this. But then he says, Jesus does not have to justify himself. He doesn't have to give some sign to prove who he is. And what he's doing is holding up the contrast between the disciples and the Jews. They're needing a sign before they will pledge their allegiance. And Jesus comes, and I think he's saying this, that if God needs to perform some powerful stunt to maintain their allegiance, that is an allegiance that God isn't interested in. If he has to come and do something to prove himself more than what he's already done, that's an allegiance that he's not interested in. And so today we, we've seen Jesus move from this very private, intimate setting of a wedding to the most public display imaginable. And we're seeing John writing to convey to his readers so many things. But here's what I think John's getting at. That Jesus is, first of all, protective of his father's worship. Meaning the, the purpose and of the temple was where God's glory dwelt. People were to come together, and this was to be an example to everyone. There was a place for everyone to be a part of this. But they've turned it into a love for money. And I think Jesus is so passionate because his father's house has been turned into a circus. There's a distraction everywhere. No one can concentrate because it's not about him anymore. It's only about us. They were hindering people from coming to know God, to experience him. And Jesus is removing everything that doesn't belong. But in this also, we see Jesus' anger. We see what it's rooted in. It is rooted in love. Jesus is so angry. But notice he never sins. The source of his anger is actually love for the Father. And I think sometimes genuine love is sometimes shown in this, this righteous anger. And it would be like this. If I vowed my love for my wife, but then you watched me sit back and her be hurt or disrespected, you'd be questioning my love for her. Why is he not stepping in and acting? And that's what Jesus does. He can take it no longer, but his anger is rooted in his love for his father. But notice he's always in control. He never loses his temper. He can even articulate what his anger is. But here's the biggest one. I had this question this week is, why does John record this? And I think it's because John is showing us there's all of these images, but now how Jesus is fulfilling those promises and prophecies. Remember we saw Jesus say that I'm the ladder. That Jacob saw the angels moving up and down. He says, but you're not realizing that's me. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. Well, Jesus is coming to say now, I am the temple. The temple is where God's glory dwelt. The temple is where sinful people came. And because of the shed blood of a sacrifice... They could experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And now Jesus comes and says, but get it, that is me. I'm the place, I'm the one that comes, and through the shedding of my blood, there finally will be reconciliation and forgiveness. Not only am I the latter, I'm the temple. 
And as you read through this, this example that John gives us, I think there are so many ways that we can relate this to our own lives. And I hope you'll go and do that this week. As you reflect back over Jesus' coming and dealing here, that there's something that you would need. But I want to share what I've been looking at and noticing this week, and maybe this will be helpful. What I see in this, I see two sides to Jesus. I see this passionate side. And the same passion that Jesus had for his Father's temple and his glory, that's the same passion that Jesus pursues you with. In those moments where we feel unworthy, unwanted, that Jesus is pursuing us with the same passion. Meaning, there is no circumstance big enough and no enemy powerful enough to stop Jesus from having me. But I also see that he's also the promise-keeping one. That not only does he pursue me with this intense passion, he has given me a list of, uh, of unlimited promises. Just listen to a few. Luke 10 promises you that you can rejoice because your name can be written in heaven. Mark 2 promises a cleansing and forgiveness of sins. John 3, a promise of eternal life that we'll look at next week. John 6 and John 10 promises that Jesus will not lose one that is given to him. Romans 8 promises that he will always work for your good. For Jude, when you're feeling like you've just messed it up again and you're beyond hope, Jesus promises to present you blameless. But here's one that, man, I've been thinking about for about two weeks now. A friend sent to me about three weeks ago. And man, I've been able to share with others. Isaiah 41.10, where he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. So I would say, what promise do you need to be holding on to now? That we see one that comes in a very different side, a very different light. And I'm so glad we get to see that passionate side of him. That he comes with this passion that the world hasn't seen. But he also comes to keep his promises. The promise one comes and he loves us and he serves us and he intercedes for us and he lays down his life. And the great promise to us is that we now at the end get to turn around and, and do the same, that we get to love Him, serve Him, and lay down our lives for Him. So what promise do you need this week that you would look to that one that comes with passion and promise-keeping power? Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.